I'll have owned a sports car. I had a family. A home. My mom died an old lady who never did anything at the top down. One day with the top down is better than a lifetime in a box. Welcome to Film Trace, where we trace the conception, production, release, and execution of various films, and we are looking this cycle of episodes at Risqué Romances, the evolution of that kind of romance film in which scandal is seems to be one of the keys. I'm your host, Chris. Dan is out this week. Thank you so much to our guests, though, for filling in and being my kind of default co-host. It's Lillian. Hi, Lillian. Thanks for joining us. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. So I asked you on because I heard you talk about uh, another film that we actually ended up covering on this set of episodes called My Beautiful Andrette. And (laughs) uh, we talked about that last week, Dan and I, with a a friend of ours. And um, I'm just so excited to hear from your perspective because I think that film, uh, at least on the state side, has really kind of gone under noticed over the years. And uh, so if you could explain to people, obviously they can tell by the accent, but who are you and um, uh, where, where did, uh, where do you kind of fit into the world of uh, film analysis and criticism? Yeah. Um, oh my goodness. What a big question. Um, oh, sorry. No, I, no that's all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm Lillian Crawford. Um, I'm a freelance writer. Um, I write for various publications, including Little White Lies, Sight and Sound, Empire Magazine, lot, um, BBC Culture, lots of um, British publications um, around film, talking about film and various other forms of culture. Um, I also host a podcast, as you mentioned, about um, British films. And my main interest is in sort of representations of, of women and queer people within British cinema, um, which is something that I, I've dedicated a lot of time to and did this episode with um, a, a great critic uh, Leila Latif on um, My Beautiful Laundrette, which is um, a wonderful film. I mean, even in this country, it's it's not being celebrated um, really? as, as much as you'd sort of expe- expect it to be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, considering that it's sort of Daniel Day-Lewis's yeah. big role, I suppose that's sort of given it a bit more reasons for people to kind of go back to it maybe um but i i um i love that film i think it's really really beautiful um so yeah that's kind of what i do <laughs> great yes thank you so much for being here uh we are going to start by well I'm actually talking about two american films today so this should be interesting since uh your your main focus t- tends to be british cinema but feel free to make connections away because i actually did see uh, a lot of interesting corollaries, um, at least mm-hmm. in the relationship piece uh, between our main feature, which is the Wachowskis Bound from 1996, and the way the kind of queer relationship is represented in My Beautiful mm-hmm. Lingerette, which is arguably, yeah. uh, you know, kind of secondary to the main plot of the film. Yeah, definitely. Which, uh, you know, especially with, uh, we will end up talking about this in a different episode of the show, but like Brokeback Mountain in the 2000s here in America for cinema, it kind of really opened up this wide net for films that that could specifically focus on gay romance. But before that, in the 90s, 80s, and even earlier, uh, you have largely queer romances really kind of being, you know, not the main focus of the film's narrative. 
Yeah. What, did you, what were some of your first impressions? I'm curious to start. I, I, this is my first watch for both of these films. I've been wanting to see right. them forever. Yeah. But uh, do you have any um, background or uh, how did you come into watching Bound for our discussion? Yeah, well, Bound is one of my absolute favorite films. Um, I'm a massive fan of the Wachowskis, always have been. Um, I think that probably the first uh, film of theirs that I saw was The Matrix. I'm sure it is for, mm-hmm. for most people. Um, and I've just absolutely loved their films ever since and have been a great champion of, of all of their films, even when people have sort of um, not been so hot on the films that they've made. Uh, Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending in particular are ones that I think have been sort of unfairly maligned. Um, mm. And I, I sort of stand waving my flag for Jupiter Ascending that no one <laughs> else seems to be following. Um, so yeah, it's it's really wonderful to go back to Bound because um, it's a film that I saw when I was sort of really interested in the Wachowskis and their cinema and this sort of groundbreaking um, technological aspects of their films, which are often talked about. Yeah. But in this case, it's a film where I mean, there is part of that. I think there are definitely elements of the cinematography in this film that sort of foreshadow things like The Matrix, which they make not too long after they make this film. Um, but I think in particular, it's its approach to um, a lesbian romance, which I don't think has really been done in the same way since or before. Yeah. It's quite unique um, in the genre of film and that representation and also being made by two lesbian filmmakers um, with, mm-hmm. um, a, with, with, with a um, sex expert sort of choreographing that as well. It's uh, That's never been done elsewhere. So it's a really unique film and one that I'm glad we're talking about because it's one that maybe not everyone has seen because as i say it sort of comes before the matrix so people might not always go go back to to it right and i i think like you said uh kind of with my beautiful lingerie kind of going under the mm. radar both stateside and in britain uh i feel like the there's a similar kind of kind of pushback almost where it's like unless you're a true cinephile or yeah. anything like that it's like oh bound yeah that's that's the lesbian movie they made before the matrix right and uh i i, I mean i w- i was interested in seeing it just because like like you said, like even when I don't like the Wachowskis movies, you know, there's still something to like in them. Right. And uh, I was curious, and, but I had really had, I think I had that stigma in my head uh, going into it. But um, I, I pulled the plug. I uh, dove in head first, uh, bought the Olive Signature Blu-ray release because it just looked so wonderful and had tons of great bonus features. <laughs> and I was like, wait, maybe this is this like a secret art film? Like what's, what, what am I getting myself into? And, uh, I was just, I was really blown away. Like there, I think that when you have a film that has a lot of like, um, the kind of steeped in cinema aspects to it, that it does, you know, references to film noir and Hong Kong cinema and all that, uh, you might, um, kind of not expect something that's actually like, artful and meaningful it might feel like more of a b-movie kind of thing pulpy thing um but uh that was that that it was so interesting that i was expecting one thing and really got something completely different Mm -hmm. and i'm curious like as you've kind of watched the wachowskis over the years yeah um where did you like i mean how does that not how do we not come back to that especially the fact Mm -hmm. that they are 
themselves uh, queer and yeah. uh, ha- have this movie that was <laughs> the, the, the beginning of their career. And yet it still kind of has this almost like, uh, you know, not so stellar representation when you've got like the matrix franchise and that's like as mainstream yeah. as you get. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I, I think that it's, it's something that Lily Wachowski in particular has sort of talked about, um, in relation to this film and their, their films in general is that since, um, since, since both of, of the sisters, um, tra- transitioned, um, later on in their, in their film career, um, they Lily Wachowski talks about how a lot of people have sort of gone back and looked at their films and, and, and yeah. seen them with a different, perspective uh, as one one of of these films being made by women and being made by queer women at that um and i think that she's really keen on people looking at these films or or at least excited by that by that prospect because they believe that those elements are there um there's a book by carl m keegan called um I think it's called Lana and Lily Wachowski, um, which which sort of looks at all of their films through that lens and applying queer theory and trans theory to to their films. Um, and I remember reading that book when it came out a few years ago. And um, Keegan starts with Bound. It makes sense, I suppose. He does. He goes through the the films in in chronological order, um, and he's really talking about in this film in particular about sort of the closetedness of it, the way the fact that we st- the film starts in a closet that it's called bound. Um, and it's sort of the idea of the, that the Wachowskis have talked about for many years is that everyone is in some form of closet on their yes. identity and their form of expression. Um, so it's not, it's, I think it's a film that appeals not just as a queer film, but also one more broadly than that. Um, that being said, it's not a film that was sort of, acknowledged as such when it came out in 1996 i think that's something that is very much better understood and resonates more now or rather that the people who are talking about films people in criticism are people who are able to talk about how this film resonates rather than if you look at someone like roger ebert's review of this film where it's sort of lesbians are in an erotic thriller thriller <laughs> to, to sort of titillate, I guess, is, is kind of the idea of that. That it's like, um, if it if the point of the erotic thriller is to, well, normally to turn on a male audience, um, then that's the, the 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 gaze that's going on with 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 this couple. But if we look at this now, I mean, uh, particularly after someone like Sadie Skiam has talked a lot about the female gaze of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and and other films that have come since then, and we look at this film, it's so different the way that it's shot, the way that it's choreographed in those sex scenes, and the relationship between them. And as you uh, you said earlier, it's it's not foregrounded. It's not the main part of the narrative it's 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 just it's it's just a normal sort of romantic thread amongst this sort of noirish um plot um yeah so i I think that's a really interesting interplay absolutely and so let's get into that narrative a little bit because even though you're right you have this thread that is not only choreographed and filmed, but also like it does have this interplay with the plot. Uh, I'd be interested to read this book that you're mentioning because like, I, my mind was going a mile a minute looking at everything from, uh, and the, you know, the Wachowskis are not shy about this, the Mm. right from the get go, all the plumbing imagery, right? Like, (laughs) like, and that's, that's the, that's the other wonderful thing about this movie is that Mm. it's just as much of a, you know, you know, 
comedy as it is <laughs> a thriller and right. all that. Uh, and so you have, uh, Gina Gershon playing Corky, a plumber uh, working in an apartment next door to Jennifer Tilly's Violet, who is living with uh, Joe Pantelano's uh, Cesar. And ultimately, this is the story of, you know, Cesar is uh, a mobster, and there's these $2 million that they're trying to recover, and he does. And so then, as Corky and Violet fall in love with each other, uh, they hatch this plan to steal it, get away with it, run off together. And even in how that, how the script is structured uh, is so interesting because, um, and Joe Pantelano plays a big role in all of, a lot of the Wachowskis work. Uh, he still is managed. Like he, I don't know. He probably has just, just as much screen time, if not more than uh, either of the main characters. And yet, <laughs> he's still relegated to that kind of so not only supporting role, but just like this, like there's no, there's no wiggle room for like us ever wanting to root for Caesar. <laughs> and yet like it's Joe Pantelano. So like you're, he's magnetic and you want to keep watching him, mm. but our sympathies are always very much aligned with the two women that are wanting to screw him over. Um, I'm curious where, when, I, I assume you've seen this movie multiple times now, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, uh, I just watched it last night, and I'm already wanting wanting to to watch it again. But yeah. through subsequent rewatches, mm. ha- have you noticed any kind of? Um, uh, does it play any different, especially over the years, with right. uh, how we uh, kind of the viewer? has their allegiances so uniquely wound up in Corky and Violet, even though uh, Cesar is right there with us along the way, just as much of the time. Yeah. I don't know. I I mean, there is a certain, I don't know if it's sympathy or pity on Cesar that you kind of feel that he's just, he's in this kind of, uncut gems situation really. Yeah. Got himself in this absolute mess with like, the, the mafia and the mob and i think i think that there is a you do end up starting to feel a bit sorry for him it's like oh my god this guy can't catch a break <laughs> also not a nice guy so should, we should stress of course that um you know that that only goes so far but i think there, you know he's not he's not your sort of typical tough guy he's um right. he's well, he's the same sort of character that um, Pantoliano plays in, like, The Matrix. He's, like, he's a bad guy, but you kind of see where he's coming from, and you kind of feel like, Mm -hmm. okay, I can see why you might want out of this, and you'd take any opportunity you can to do that. That being said, I mean, um, the two female leads, Violet and um, Corky, are just so magnetic and so fascinating i mean the the jennifer tilly and the way that she sort of has this hold over everyone but she the way she shifts her voice between Mm -hmm. how she talks to corky and the way she talks to men where she sort of makes herself almost vulnerable to them and makes makes it she everyone in this film has their eyes on her and she's totally in command of that and i find that absolutely like fascinating and riveting to watch because the audience is part of that, right? You're like completely in the palm of her hand. Um, 
and Gina Gershon's amazing as well. Um, but but it's it's not so multifaceted as a performance. I don't think. I think the way that that she navigates those different relationships and the ways that she talks to different people um, is re- is really fun to watch. Right. And infamously, uh, that was one of, you know, the, the sticking points for mm-hmm. the Wachowskis is that Corky could not be a, a man, a male character. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know, they didn't even get to have a conversation financially with anybody until Dino De Laurentiis who ended up producing it. And mm-hmm. even he was trying to push for them to, to change that role. And mm-hmm. they say straight up, like they have no interest in that. And that the thing that really stuck with me and Gina Gershon uh, speaks about this a little bit in her interview at Ebert Fest um, in 2019, where it's like, yeah, even yes, she is very much a female character, but when mm-hmm. she's looking at like influences or inspiration for how to play that character, which you, you know, justifiably note is not necessarily as multifaceted as Violet and Jennifer Tilly's role, especially with how she speaks to different characters and largely Corky's only interacting with Violet, but she plays it. And she says this in, in the interview, like she's thinking about Marlon Brando, James Dean, like mm. these classic fifties, really like stoic male characters that have this darkness to them that have this, uh, uh, kind of uh, mysterious quality to them. But for the most part, like even through to the end of the film, which spoiler alert, you should go watch bound before uh, <laughs> you, you keep listening. But uh, it, it's that classic really just like somehow super effective, even though it's totally part of the trope of them, like riding off to the sunset together right. and still quirky, even though you know, <laughs> listening through the walls of countless men being murdered is still got this like cool reserve to her yeah. and knows that like they pulled it off. So what is the, what, how do, how, how do we unpack that? Uh, the fact that there, even though there's a, a strong, um, focus on this, uh, female romance mm-hmm. and yet there's this, there, there is this strong pull. Like she's literally a plumber. There's so much masculinity to her character right. versus violets. Yeah. I mean, one of the most fascinating things I think about the casting of this, I mean, it was nightmare to cast, I suppose in 96. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think it would probably be cast differently now. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was, it was the, the Jennifer Tilly was supposed to play um, Corky, which I just right. can't imagine. <laughs> um, I don't know how she'd be how she would have pulled that part i mean she clearly didn't think that she would do because it was supposed to be linda hamilton playing violet which is also fascinating because i can like i can totally see like sarah connor in terminator 2 being like the the corky character in the way yeah her her sort of that that character's kind of vibe and aesthetic and it is as you say it is quite masculine um there is a certain butchness to to that character um so I think I think that Gina Gershon is is definitely the right person to to play Corky, um, which which is interesting because it, it, I I suppose that but there's there's still no sort of defined roles between the two characters. What, what's like that sort of classic thing of interrogating all homosexual relationships stereotypically that people will say like which one of you is the man and which one of you is the woman, even though you're right. both of the same gender. Um, and that it's it's not like one of them is sort of dominant and one of them is submissive. They both that there is a sort of switching going on between in the dynamic between the two characters that I think is really 
interesting um and is what like i mean the final line of the film is just so great and <laughs> she says well, do you know what the difference is between you and me yeah and it's like no she says me neither and then they drive off into the sunset as you say um is is that there is this this similarity but it 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 switches and it changes it's not it's not set in its roles um and i think that's a, um a perspective on queer relationships that you just don't see very often that it normally it normally isn't there isn't that same equity that you get um right. in in this film even though there is a power play i mean you know this is there is there is certainly a sort of hierarchy between the two of them socially but that's broken down through the relationship that they have um and i i, I think that's that's a really beautiful thread that that sort of shifts rather than moves in one direction. I mean, that's what the Wachowskis are all about throughout their, their, their films is sort of fluidity and not putting things into binary categorizations that everything is sort of shifting constantly throughout their films. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been the source of criticism. I think, I think that's partly why some of their films have been not as embraced as other films um, because it's not something that mainstream cinema audiences necessarily are used to or, or like it's, it's, it's a different aesthetic that's going on. It's a different form of, of, of narrative that um, I don't, I don't think there are many other filmmakers creating. I mean, Carnem Keegan in his book would say that that's, that's, that's a specifically trans thing, but I, I think it goes beyond that i think i think it's just a way of a way of seeing that is that is different to which i think is benefited from the fact that there are two of them that that, that it's not just a singular perspective that um lana and lily wachowski are able to sort of play off each other and, and and interact and throw these ideas around and you end up getting something that's sort of more balanced between the two of them rather than a singular narrow vision yeah and I mean, speaking of the, the Wachowski's kind of vision here, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier the uh, you know hard-boiled noir aspect, and you've got like you kind of mentioned with the cinematography in particular, this uh, kind of Hong Kong action thing that will follow them all the way right. through the Matrix franchise. Um, but the other really strong influence, perhaps even more so than uh the matrix maybe this is your uh helps perhaps with your jupiter ascending defense um (laughs) is the 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 really strong graphic novel uh Mm -hmm. vibe and presence that's in this film and uh i know that uh you know comic books have also been you know historically one of the few places that uh uh, queer authors and artists really had Mm -hmm. uh, a place um to to, to really express themselves uh, right. yeah. uh, and to really see that come through here, especially with that, not only the, the masculine aspects of, of uh, Corky's character, but just like, you know, being a mafia, a mafia movie, right. That's typically a very masculine genre. Uh, and yet they're still able to bring this kind of almost like cartoonish, cartoonish softness to it mm. that uh, really helps. I don't know, for me, like I, I I, I get so bored so easily by the, the you know ultra violence and um, the graphic action, and yet because they're so, I don't know, there's something like so fantastical about it. Like this, this uh, it's just an ordinary '90s apartment, and yet it feels kind of otherworldly uh, because of uh, 
everything from the set design to uh, how the the characters are portrayed. And where is it like how I mean, that it just it 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 still amazes me, especially for a feature debut film. How are they able to take a movie that is essentially like phone calls and conversations, hmm. uh, and you know a, a briefcase full of money, and turn it into something so like bombastic and like uh, visual? Uh, I don't know. Did you think about that at all as you as you were either watching or rewatching over the years? Yes, I mean especially when you're sort of watching it again in the context of their later films. I mean, you don't get more epic than a film like Cloud Atlas. It's just something something played out on such massive scales that they did. I mean, even in the matrix itself is sort of, um, is vast and everything they've done since then has just been on the biggest possible scale they have i mean sensate for example their tv series mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. is literally global <laughs> it's it's across um multiple continents so i i just think that to go back and every time to, th- to think that they started by making this chamber piece this sort of play right. i guess that that's really well closet drama <laughs> also i suppose is another way of describing it is 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 so fascinating because it's still got that same storytelling and sort of focus that those later films have. Um, but maybe that's, maybe that's why it's still my favorite of their films. Maybe it's because mm. it's, they don't necessarily need that, that grandeur to it, that they can do that within a very small space. Um, and actually I suppose, um, Lily Wachowski's kind of gone back that way now. She's, she's sort of doing, um, TV series and, and, and smaller scale work while, Lana Wachowski's just done the fourth Matrix film on her own, and she's she's still doing different projects with people like David Mitchell, um, developing bigger ideas um, and losing lots of money in the process, I suppose. Whereas <laughs> this is a much safer way of sort of um, of of appealing and and making sure that the film is successful. Um, it, I I don't know. It's it's a, it's really fascinating. You talking about like graphic novels and. Uh, the sort of um, the the appeal of, of queerness there, um, and and specifically a, a female um, perspective as well. I mean, I think of um, particular Susie Bright who did the um, right. the sex scenes within the film, and the way those are shot, and the way that they they. I mean, the the main sex scene the center of this film, I think, is quite inspired by uh, Tony Scott's The Hunger. That's the mm-hmm something I've reflected on quite a lot is the way that the two sort of pivotal main sex scenes within those two films are, are different to each other um, is that this one is clearly coordinated by someone who has herself had sex with other women. Um, And she described the film as being um, wet as opposed to hard um, as a sort of feminine versus masculine. I think that's a really fascinating way of looking at the film as a whole and it ties into what i was saying earlier about fluidity and the way that fluidity works in the wachowski's films is that this is there is a softness to this film um but it's one that is explicitly erotic that you don't it doesn't have to be masculine hard in order to be erotic that it can also that, that there is a, a feminine sexuality to that um which, which to me as a woman is, is, is far more appealing um, as, as a mode of filmmaking, I think. Definitely. What is, uh, so I'm, I was curious about this because uh, mm. 
Susie Bright not only ends up being the um, technical consultant on the film for the reasons you just mentioned, she's yeah. got a cameo in the scene where they're they go to the lesbian bar, yeah. and uh, and it just seems like even before the Wachowskis transitions, uh, you have this really strong sense of like wanting to do things right and not just in, in technical sense, but also just like in a cultural sense, uh, like they, they want, you know, they completely entrusted bright to, uh, cast the extras in that lesbian bar to ensure that it had this, uh, sense of realism to it, which is almost ironic considering how pulpy and comic-y and, you know, unreal. So many other aspects of the film are like, they are tuned into, uh, even back in 96, the importance of representation on screen. And that kind of rings true going back to My Beautiful Andrette real quick, where it's like you you see this importance of, uh, you, you know, making sure um, the immigrant lifestyle is uh, accurately portrayed, the classism and... Um, and yet these movies, even though they're, they're you know, be, doing this very huge thing, it was it just like the world is not ready for, like, having that kind of conversation and giving that kind of respect where respect is due at this time? Maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably it. I mean, if we think about um, intimacy coordination as a role in film, it's mm-hmm. not something that I'd even really heard of until the last few years um, sure. and started noticing intimacy coordinators being credited at the end of films and, and investigating that. And I went to a panel um, a, a little while ago with, with some intimacy coordinators talking about the increase in demand for intimacy coordination in TV and film when there are um, scenes of a sexual nature of any kind. And that's not just in film, of course, and television, it's also in, in, in plays and operas and musicals and whatever, any, anything that sort of requires intimacy needs to be coordinated in such a way that the act that the consent is very much at the core of it and the way that it's, it's shown. I mean, I went to a Q and a with Claire Denis recently um, about her new film, um, both sides of the plate. And she said that um, she doesn't believe in intimacy coordination. Like this, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was the sort of thing that I'd probably expect Claire Denis to say, but yeah. to think that in 1996, the Wachowskis are, absolutely convinced that if they're going to do this they need i mean they originally didn't write it with with these with the scenes in them and it was susie bright who sort of told them that that's it would really help to flesh it out and to make it um to give it that authenticity and they listened and they worked with that um you know if a lot of the reviews around the time when this film was made are saying well this is this is a film that is impossible to believe was made by a man when it's obviously not it's made by, <laughs> by, by two lesbian women. Um, yes. and, and, and it feels that way because they, I don't believe that unless the people writing it and creating it were themselves. So aware of that, then it wouldn't have been the film that it was, but I guess contextually, I mean, I'm not even sure if that would have been possible. Um, if, if, if that was known in, in the late nineties, um, around who was actually making this film, um, whether, whether or not it would have been, would have been made in the same way, um, and, and produced in the same way. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think there's a simple answer to that, but I sure. certainly think that, um, it's very important when we're looking at 
the history of film and the importance of the Wachowskis and what the Wachowskis are doing. I mean, um, as female filmmakers, they're doing stuff that no one else has, has done before throughout their career. Um, and I, I, I think that that's something that needs to be acknowledged and celebrated more than perhaps it is. I mean, Bound is still a film that is fairly hard to, to get hold of. Um, it's not one that people seem to have seen when you talk about the Wachowskis. Um, mm-hmm. As you said, there, there are Blu-rays now. Um, there's, there's been some, some fairly recently, and I, I think I had a, I have a DVD copy somewhere. But before that, <laughs> it was, it wasn't, it wasn't a film I was really aware of because when you talk about the Wachowskis, it, again, it's all Matrix. Matrix is sort of very much writ large in, in their career, right. and there's so much else to to their filmmaking that that is so rich and so interesting beyond just oh they invented bullet time <laughs> right exactly would you actually see a little bit of you see in, in this film oh <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's it's obviously subtler but it's yeah. it's there for sure absolutely um <laughs> and am I right in thinking that like this uh, kind of more modern proliferation of intimacy coordination on film sets mm-hmm. almost feels like another one of those like ripple effects of the Me Too movement and right. uh, directly in response to, you know, a, a lot of you know, mm-hmm. the still very aggressively majority male, okay. cis straight male um uh, directing and producing that dominates Hollywood, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's definitely um, something that's been talked about a lot more since since um, people started to talk about these things, particularly in relation to to the film industry, and then not just the film industry, but as I said earlier, like other other creative arts where where people are um, engaging in these acts. Is that it's it? I think I think you're right that it's sort of percolated into all aspects of. Um, production and i think that that can only be a positive thing so again if we're talking about me too as being sort of a, a, a relatively contemporary phenomenon then we're going back quite a way <laughs> this is this is a film True. that is that is that is doing things and pioneering techniques and ideas that are very much ahead of their time in a way that we've always talked about the wachowskis as being but in a very different way um in, in terms of, of, of fight choreography, cinematography, etc., the, the, the sort of technical aspects that that really sort of they've been pushed into, I suppose. Um, when really there's 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 something else that they were doing even before the Matrix, but throughout their films, um, which which is shaping and shifting the conversation and the way that the, the way that films are made. Um, they can't just do that on their own though. So I suppose it sort of stands out when you look at other nineties erotic thrillers. I mean, we're going to talk about one shortly, <laughs> um, which does this in such, in a completely different way. Um, and, and like the hunger again, the, the way that the scenes between um, Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve were shot was like the idea of a closed set wasn't really understood and the and like they you think that it's going to be a closed set but actually there's more people i mean even on this even on this film it wasn't actually a closed set because they had to move the the actual sort of scenery around in order to shoot the, yep. the sex scenes um but it's it's so fascinating when you hear um the actors involved in these scenes talking about them particularly when it's same sex scenes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that 
there's a nervousness to it. And a, a lot of the time these films are shot with the actors um, have gotten drunk beforehand. Um, right. It's yeah. like, well, that suggests to me a lack of comfort with what they're doing. I, 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 I don't know. Maybe that's not, maybe that's not the case. And I certainly don't, I don't think that's the case with this film, but I think it is the case with other films where you, where you hear actors talking about sex scenes and there's a, there's, there's such a great discomfort around it and the way that it's been, the dynamic that's gone on. I mean, I think for example, of Julie Ormond in, um, um, baby of Masson, the, um, Peter Greenaway film. And she talks later on about how, um, Peter Greenaway would sort of stand and chew wine gums while they were having filming this incredibly explicit sexual assault scene. And he was just sort of, and all you could hear was him sort of munching in the, in the corner watching. God. I mean, it's, um, I interviewed Peter Greenaway the other day. I didn't mention that. Um, I didn't know if he'd particularly like to talk about that, that aspect, but it's, it's a story that I think of. I mean, I mean, to take it to its most extreme example is something like, um, Fernando Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris, which, um, there was, was very much not a consensual, um, situation. And, I think since then we we sort of look back on those films and we hear the conversations ar- around them in relation to to me too where it's not just about what's going on behind the scenes um behind the camera but also what's actually going on in front of us on camera um yeah. and and the levels of consent that are involved w- within that that I think that bound is is doing in in a time before the conversations that we've been having a lot over the last few years um, within film um, around around the nature of consent. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that consent piece applies to so so many other aspects too, not just on screen sex scenes too, right? Um, there's actually an interesting featurette with uh, Chris Maloney, who plays the character of Johnny in the film. Uh, uh, where he speaks of the the torture scene in the bathroom, right? Um, and you know, even in those instances where it's supposed to be gruesome, it's supposed to be button pushing or whatever. Like uh, the Wachowskis were very intentional about how, uh, the the level of you know comfort and discomfort that mm-hmm. an actor should or you know should not have to be experiencing to replicate to depict that kind of intensity. Um, you know, he even goes so far as to say like, you know, I, I, we wanted to get a rubber toilet so that when they you know plunge his face in there, they don't even worry about him nicking his head right. uh, or anything like that on the porcelain. Um, they're unable to. So it's like you, they, they make sure that the, the actors on both sides are continuously, uh, able to you know, take breaks and uh, voice their concern when, you know, something's getting a little bit you know, too close for comfort and all that. And I think that that's another aspect of it um, that plays through their filmography too, where it's like, even in the most uh, visceral of scenes, um, you still have this kind of sense of, uh, warmth to their work and uh i think that's i think that's perhaps one of the reasons why their their work with um on-screen violence and action Mm -hmm. has become so celebrated and unfortunately it has not necessarily become the norm but has become kind of the gold standard where it's like they're able to do like even extended gunplay scenes Mm -hmm. and 
never feels really exploitative. It feels fantastical, but it never never feels like they're they're doing anything. They, yeah, there's just like. Uh, you know, and this is, I think, also one of the the main defenses for Speed Racer, yeah. <laughs> a Wachowski film that I I don't necessarily like, but definitely admire and appreciate the fact that they're they're able to imbue this sense of uh, or just real like there's 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 just like it's good hardness. Like I can't make fun of it, even though it's not something I particularly enjoy because they're just so good at what they do. Yeah. Um, Speed, Speed Race is a magnificent film. I should stress that. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I, 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 I can definitely respect it. Uh, what? Uh, maybe we should use that as a, 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 a segue mm. for us to talk a little bit about Poison Ivy because you yeah. mentioned you know the, the Peter Greenway thing, and uh, it right. definitely made me think of the fact that like on that set of mm. Poison Ivy, the infamous 1992 uh, thriller with Drew Barrymore playing the Lolita type, uh, and then Tom Skerritt as the friend's father that she becomes uh, romantically involved with. And there's like copious amounts of uh behind the scenes tidbits about how just like tom scarrett felt absolutely uncomfortable in every single scene they filmed together uh and i'm curious from your perspective once again this is my first time seeing it i'd heard about it forever it ended up it was like one of those movies where it was like i i knew it was on on like the showtime free trial when in the 90s when i was growing up uh in the middle of the night but it was like it was so taboo. Um, mm. And I don't, I mean, I did not have the same kind of like, <laughs> wow, I love this movie. Uh, yeah. kind of. <laughs> um, but it's, I still think in, it's a, it's a, it, it's a disturbingly fascinating mm. look at the, uh, the, you use the phrase erotic thriller, which is yeah. what so much of the late eighties, early nineties was about. Yeah. Um, what's your, uh, kind of background in history with poison ivy if anything yeah it's not one that i'd um seen it's one i was aware of okay um it's one one that i sort of had interest in mainly because i i'm interested in sort of even if it's not necessarily the most sort of um groundbreaking queer film ever made um, there is there is an element of queerness to it i suppose yeah um and, and i was aware of um sarah gilbert and um, drew barrymore's performances i mean barrymore is particularly exceptional i would say within oh, yeah. this film she's really if 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 jennifer tilly is in is in command of bound drew barrymore is in command of poison ivy um sure as you say tom scarrett's very much sort of deeply uncomfortable throughout this <laughs> film it's not it's not he, it's not him who's sort of driving the eroticism at the heart of the film between him and um, Drew Barrymore's character. But um, it's, it's one that she's very much in control and command of. And I think as a performance study of that kind of relationship, it's, it's really interesting. Um, it's extraordinarily problematic. Of course it is. As you said, it's, it's sort of later, um, I mean, sometimes even sort of explicit references to Lolita when she's sort of sat out in in the garden with with, yeah. with in this sort of outfit that's very much like the Kubrick Lolita um, filming with sort of um, Humber Humber watch, watching um, watching Lolita in in the garden. I I, I think that so it's it's knowing. 
um, what it's actually saying about that is unclear to me. I think I think I think it's probably it's quite fetishistic at times. I mean, there is a there is a scene in um, in the rain when she's wearing that outfit and it's completely soaked through, um, and she's having sex with 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 Skerritt on his car. And I was thinking, yeah, I can see who this is <laughs> trying to appeal to, which is the complete opposite of what we were talking about with the eroticism in Bound, which is which mm. is very much sort of. I mean, I don't doubt that a male gaze could get something out of the the female gaze of that film, but I I don't think that that's who it's necessarily appealing to. Um, right. Whereas in the whereas in Poison Ivy, it's it's pretty darn clear <laughs> who those scenes are are intended for. Right, and it's interesting because I I you know I wasn't even entertaining the thought of including this film in our, our, our series, uh, for the, for these episodes yeah. until I, you know, read a little bit up on it and it, it has a, a woman director, which is yeah. unusual for a 1992 erotic thriller that is yeah. so male gazy. Exactly. Um, but I mean, it, it kind of, pro- it, it, it's almost like, a, a another side of this conversation of, mm-hmm. you know, who the power dynamic in Hollywood, uh, Kat Shea was the director. And at the time she largely was known as a hired hand for Roger Corman, right. uh, B movie exploitation film, you know, uh, mogul. And, uh, she directed a number of his films, mm-hmm. uh, including uh, Strip to Kill, The Patriot, and even the the third Psycho sequel. Yeah. Uh, and so when she comes onto set for, you know, kind of her first chance at, like, breaking through, like, and the other aspect of this is, even though Bound wasn't really an art film, but you look back on it and it feels like an art film, you go, go back and watch Poison Ivy, it doesn't look or feel like an art film, and yet it was... A movie that premiered at Sundance right, and yeah. was very much seen as like this small independent film, but with a very clear kind of overhanging production centric feel to it, where it's like yeah. the execs literally said, Make us a teenage fatal attraction. And yeah. that's you know essentially exactly what you get. There are those interesting elements, like you mentioned. I think the the, the push and pull of the relationship between um, Ivy, if that is her real name, and uh, uh, Sarah Gilbert's character is it does help make it a little more watchable than the average, you know, uh, teen uh, girl seducing a you know older male figure. And also, like you mentioned, just Drew Barry's Drew Barrymore's performance. Like mm-hmm. she is committing so much to this role that she somehow makes it watchable. Um, and yet, there's like this still very like kind of just trashy and assembly line feel to the film. And mm-hmm. I, I, it's just it, it's so bizarre to me how those two can kind of like coexist. How did, how did they get just enough interesting things in there to make it passable uh, from an artistic point of view? And yet it still is just like, it just, I mean, it, it, it I, I don't know where there, it, hmm. I don't know where to start. Uh, take yeah. it away. Lillian, I'm no, sorry. no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting what you're saying. Cause uh, Cache is sort of, I almost wonder if, um, I suppose her relationship to, to Roger Corman um, mm-hmm. as, as a director is really interesting because I suppose 
if this feels like it could be a film that someone like Corman would make, I mean, I, I, it's, yeah. it's, in, in the, in the sense of that, of that gazing. And it's like a, a female directors in, in this period who are sort of, many of them are having to sort of emulate what men are doing and the, and the male way of making films and those films that you mentioned, things like strip to kill, um, the rage carry Two, and, and, oh, and, right, yeah. and so on. Um, that the, the, these are films which, um, are sort of just, it's, it's like doing a pickup job almost like you have to sort of take it. And it's like whenever you, it's one of those films where, you say to someone, Oh, that was directed by a woman. They go, was it like, um, something like American <laughs> psycho, which I, I suppose is probably the most, the most famous one where Mary sure. direct directs it. I mean, that's a really fascinating film to, to, to talk about in a different way in, to, in terms of, um, the way that films like the matrix, I guess, have been sort of appropriated by a certain sort oh, of right. male audience by contrast to how a female audience might actually engage with it. Um, I don't know if I can get that from Poison Ivy. I don't know if I can sort of watch this film and see, and and and, and see if there's an aspect of something. I mean, may, maybe there is something within the the, the queerness of, of um, Sarah Gilbert's character and the way that she sort of um, has develops this sort of connection to and love for for um for ivy as as the lead character i mean the the film opens with her sort of addressing directly the fact of the fact like is she a lesbian um which which i thought was which is dismissed very quickly it's like i thought i might be a lesbian i'm definitely not it's like right sure (laughs) and then she goes on to obsess over well exactly um but like even even then like the, the the kiss between the two of them is a big deal. This is like a period in film when a same sex kiss is still sort yep. of like a big thing. And it's a big thing for these two actors. And there's this hilarious sort of interview with Sarah Gilbert, where she's sort of saying that, um, they would they, they they were nervous about it, so they decided that they should get some practice in in, in the um, the van before they went on to set. Um, right. It's like yeah, sure, um, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if that maybe that makes it slightly more interesting than than some other erotic films from the early nineties um, in 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 some ways. And I think that I was watching this film hoping for um, some kind of reappraisal or some kind of reclamation of it, which I didn't really get. It wasn't like, oh wow, there's this long lost lesbian film that I hadn't seen yet. Um, it was like, okay, no, this is just doing that thing that a lot of erotic thrillers do right. it, it, um, where it's sort of um, that that's enough to sort of fetishize, I guess. But as long as we make sure that there's also plenty of sort of heterosexual sex going on um, as well within, mm-hmm. with, with, within the narrative. And yet it, it you know, it's uh, there, there's this long line of direct video sequels right. from it. And it has, just that phrase has become kind of appropriated as like synonymous with that kind of thin line between pornography and uh, a, a a trashy erotic thriller from the nineties. And you have this almost like it it makes it unfortunate because there, and it's not just the poison Ivy franchise. There's the crush, the babysitter, like all those nineties films that do this, essentially very similar kind of premise. And yet, uh, at least to my knowledge, I haven't 
seen in full any of those films much less in several years when they were playing on tbs and stuff uh, edited i'm sure for (laughs) uh uh, for general audiences but when you have still like that like there's so that still seems to it just it seems to be one of those cases of just like it it could have it had the potential to actually do and be something different yeah. and it would just had fallen by the wayside like there was still uh, the original ending planned was for ivy to uh survive and hitchhike um on her own out of town uh but the new line cinema exec said no you got to change it and it's just like i mean being a, a Roger Corman uh, mentee, it's clear that like she's got a sense of like this is the industry. This is I'm going to work within the system. I'm going to do what my bosses tell me. Uh, kind of vibe to it. It doesn't have that kind of more intrepid visionary. And I'd hope the Wachowskis would agree with this, where it's like they at the time probably still had a good amount of. Uh, uh, privilege to like be able to do that with their first feature film. Mm. And yet here it's like, uh, now Kat Shea is, you know, not only did she go on in the nineties to make the rage carry too, but then, mm-hmm. uh, she basically was relegated to TV movies, right. uh, for the rest it still of still is. Video. I mean, her it latest film is. is is a Netflix film about a dog. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's just it's really unfortunate because you're right. There could that 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 queer uh, element. The if there was more of a focus on that relationship, and you know, if the the third act wasn't such a complete predictable mess. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's also the the, the mother character that we should haven't even mentioned yet. That speaking of problematic, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like treating mental illness the way you'd expect, like a 1950s movie too. Yeah, um, <laughs> what what really just like was the nail in the coffin for me because I also was like watching the film, waiting for like, and I was really hopeful by the beginning of the film and this kind of once again almost noirish voiceover happening and this kind of curious, uh, unreliable narrator perspective. It almost it really gave me vibes of like. Uh, Nick Carraway, the the Great Gatsby, mm. where it's like you you've got this this person that doesn't want to admit that they have this uh, uh, queer obsession with this uh, other, and yet it it just yeah it just fall like all the pieces fall right in line with what you'd expect, mm. as if the it, you know the Wachowskis were convinced to make Corky a male character, mm. in which case Bound would have been a footnote in history, like Poison Ivy is now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, <laughs> with that, um, I, I'm curious at the end of this, uh, Lillian, if you would like to make any final plea to the listeners, yeah. uh, myself included. Uh, because I am honestly, I think I would agree. Bound is my favorite Wachowski's film. Mm. And, uh, I I am tempted to go back and give both speed racer and Jupiter ascending another shot. I don't know if I can give cloud Atlas another one, but I'm willing to hear your your final (laughs) thoughts. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, Poison Ivy's fun. Might watch that. I mean, I, I want to watch Poison Ivy too. Um, that looks that looks like a, that looks like a, a romp. Also directed directed by, by um, Anne Gorsand and written by Chloe King. So that 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 one, that one intrigues me. So maybe maybe that's what I'll be doing. Um, but yeah, no, I think 
please watch Bound. It's so good, <laughs> um, and it's, it is more more accessible to to get hold of than than perhaps it, it used to be. Um, and yeah, do do go and watch Jupiter Ascending and and Speed Racer and Cloud Atlas. For goodness' sake, my goodness! <laughs> um, read the book first, then watch Cloud Atlas. Um, okay, yeah, maybe that helps. Maybe, maybe it's because I'm such a massive fan of the book that um, sure, that it appeals sure. so much. But yeah, no. Definitely Great. watch these. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Lillian, for joining us. If people want to uh, read up more on your stuff, obviously they can just Google Lillian Crawford film. But uh, is there anything that you're currently working on or that people can expect from you in the near future? Yeah. And also plug your pod one more time, please. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I um, I co-host a, a, a podcast called Autism Free Cinema, um, where I sort of t- we talk about fil- films that sort of resonate with um, autistic people, including myself, um, and and the nature of autism and, and film, which is really um, that can be found on all podcast um places my other one is called listen to lillian i have a website um lilcroft.co.uk that's um lil with two l's in the middle um and that's also my my twitter handle if twitter still exists by the time that this goes out um yeah so i I, these are places where you can you can find my work i suppose actually if, if twitter's um not going to be there then um across the internet on sight and sound empire little white lies bbc culture um various places as you say google me and and film film reviews and and thoughts will come out in abundance (laughs) wonderful thank you so much lillian for joining us thank you so much for having me absolutely this has been film trace (laughs) 